0: Good morning. Very thankful to to be here again with you. It's been a couple of years, and uh, if you are a guest, please come back next week, because it will probably be better. Uh, I know, having been uh, here uh, as a parishioner, and uh, very thankful for this church and what it means to me, I think of you, pray of you often, Your um, my ordination certificates inside my office, and I I look at it and think about the church and pray for it, and just very thankful for not only your pastors, but also you as well. If you have a Bible, if you could take your Bible and turn to 1 Peter, we're going to be looking at chapter 4 this morning, verses 7 through 11. It's 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 7 through 11, that's right towards the end of the Bible, so if you just... uh, turn past Hebrews and James right before you get to 1st and 2nd and 3rd John it's right there this is what Peter writes to the churches in Asia Minor. he says the end of all things is at hand Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly since love covers a multitude of sins. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Whoever speaks is one who speaks oracles of God. Whoever serves is one who serves by the strength that God supplies in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, truly dominion and power in everything belongs to you. Lord, I pray through your word today that you would make us good stewards of the grace that you've given to us in Christ Jesus. Lord, I thank you for each person here, Lord, and I realize that each of us has many thoughts and cares on our hearts that, uh, Lord, that we need answers. Lord, help us to rest in you in all things. Lord, may we be captivated by your grace and what you're doing and take comfort in the fact, Lord, that you are a God who is in control of all things. Lord, we also realize that you've called us to do particular things in light of the fact that you are coming again, Lord. So I pray that that you would, Lord, give us our marching orders here from this text. Lord, speak to us that we might serve you better. In Christ's name we pray, amen. Now, have you ever speculated about the end of the world? You ever asked yourself the question, what would I do if this were my last week here on earth? What would you do if you knew that, that next Saturday the world was going to end for you? Would, would you do anything different than you're already doing? Would, would you still go to work if you're, if you're doing that? Would you, would, you, would you still live life as usual? I guess not. <laughs> Many talk about the vacations that they'd go and take and how they wanted to visit this place. They'd never been there, and so they're, they're just going to go ahead and do that. Or maybe you'd go and and, uh, try that thing that you were always too afraid to try and and go and do that. Or maybe you'd gather with your family or just throw caution to the wind or do something that you would not have otherwise done. Maybe you would totally deplete whatever savings you had and go on some kind of wild spending spree. What would you do? You got one right there. Well, in his second letter to the Thessalonians, Paul addresses the church on this very issue. Many had thought that Christ had come or that he was about to come, and so they quit their jobs. They were just waiting for him. And Paul tells them, that's not what you're supposed to do. That's not how you're to live. Tells them to get back to work. Maybe that's why God doesn't tell us when the end's going to come, aside from the fact that Christ didn't even know during his earthly ministry, when that would be, God knows, and he knows that we would probably misuse the time if we knew when it would be. We'd fulfill some kind of hedonistic, pleasure-laden craving, filling ourselves with all manner of junk food and junk activity. Well, in today's text, Peter tells us how we are to live in light of the end. And there's nothing hedonistic, there's nothing unusual about it. He calls you to do What you were always supposed to be doing. Do you think we're living in the last days? And if you do, do you think you should do something different than you perhaps are already doing? Well, pay attention to what Peter has to say, for he's going to answer that in no uncertain terms. Throughout Peter's letter, he calls believers elect exiles who've been born again through hope, through faith in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. He addresses the trials and the sufferings that that they had gone through, and he gives us instructions as to how we are to go through them, vertically in our relationship with God in setting our hope upon him in holiness as he is and in fear of him. He also gives us instructions horizontally as how we are to live with one another, loving one another, being unified with fellow believers and being subject to various human institutions with the goal of defending and sharing the faith with those who do not have the hope of Christ that you do. In short, and to summarize what Peter has told us in this letter up until this point, he's calling each of us to persevere in light of suffering in light of the fact that you have Christ and that others need him too. Well, to give you an outline of sorts, and I'm not going to take credit for this outline, even though I kind of came up with my own outline, I went and found John MacArthur had a better one, and so I'm just going to give, give you just exactly what he said as an outline. I had different words. He had a nice little, across, uh, not acrostic, uh, you know what I'm talking about, when they all line up, acronym. What is it? Okay. Yes. Alliteration, that's right. I know that word, it just it, uh, escaped me. We're going to see in the first part of verse seven the Christian's intention in living in light of the end. We're going to see through, through uh, the second part of verse seven on through the first part of verse 11 the Christian's instruction in living in light of the end. And finally we'll see in the latter parts of verse 11 the Christian's intention in living in light of the end. So let's look at verses seven together And see the Christian's incentive. Now in verse 6, Peter had made reference to the final judgment. And so in verse 7, he continues that idea by talking about the end of history. And this is what he says. He says, the end of all things is at hand. Now your translation may say the end of all things is near. In other words, it's not far off. So whatever Peter is about to say in the rest of verse 7 and on into the next section, this is why he's saying it. He's going to give us as believers some instructions as to how we are to live. And all that he is saying is in light of the fact that we are at the end of the story. Now, Christians today, we love to talk about the fact that we think we're living in the last days. And what I think they mean by that, what I think we mean by that is it's getting worse. The end must be drawing close. My friend, the end was at hand 2,000 years ago. We need to get our head out of the sand of our own context and see things not only globally, not only look at the rest of the world, right, but but also historically. Jesus' death and his resurrection has ushered in the end of time. That's what Peter had said in chapter 1, verse 20, that Christ was made manifest in the last times. All we await for is for him to come again. John says in 1 John 2, 18, Children, it is the last hour. And as you have heard that Antichrist is coming, so now many Antichrists have come. Therefore, we know that it is the last hour. But Peter will show that living in light of the end is manifested in immensely practical ways. It's near, it's at hand, and this is what you're to do about it. Our incentive for living the Christian life in this world is rooted in the fact that Christ is coming again. And so the end being near inspires action. Now now some of you may have heard or even experienced a time in your life when someone was speaking about living in the last days. And they're convinced that Christ is going to come back at any moment. And you know what? There's no reason that they shouldn't believe that. Christ can come back at any time. But there's nothing to say that he has to. This is what uh, Pastor Randy Alcorn recently observed in reading a book by Pastor G. Campbell Morgan written some 50 years ago. And this is what G. Campbell Morgan said. He said, I have no sympathy with people who tell us today that these are the darkest days the world has ever seen. Yes, the days we are living are appalling but they do not compare with conditions in the world when Jesus came into it. And then he talks about the letters that we see written in the New Testament, 1 Peter being among them, and he makes this observation. He says that that not one of these letters shows a believer downcast or pessimistic or depressed because of the state of affairs in which they live in. He says, judge not by the circumstances of the passing hour, but by the infinite things of our gospel and our God. And that is exactly what these people did. Truth is, the the end has been near for a great long while. It's nothing new. Now, now this is just me speaking, and you can take it for what it's worth. I think a good cure for our self-absorbed doomsaying, where we think that we're living in the darkest hour, is to go on a mission trip to a third world country. You don't typically see believers there in that context, downcast and doom-laden. At least I didn't. They're they're thankful. They're they're hopeful. They remember their life outside of Christ, and they know, and I'm quoting another pastor, John Piper here, they know the truth that we were as close to hell as the chair that you are sitting on. But you don't have to go halfway around the world to appreciate that. You can pull your head out of the sand of your own geographical and historical context and see that we've been at the end for some some great time. And yours, Christian, is not a call to be sad about it. Rather, we see the Christian's instruction in living in light of the end as verse 7 continues on through the first part of verse 11. And what follows here are four ways that you and I can practically live our life in light of the end. Number one, in the rest of verse 7, we are to think rightly in order to pray. Number two, love. And we see that this kind of love covers sin in verse eight. Number three, show hospitality in verse nine. And number four, serve one another with the gifts that God has given you in verses 10 and 11. And so as we're looking at these things, as we're looking at right thinking, and we're thinking and looking at love and hospitality and using your gifts to serve others, I want you to ask yourself this question. How many of these things do I really do well? I don't I don't most of us I think are barely even scratching the surface when it comes to what we're called to here. We're not living in light of the end. We're living like we've got all the time in the world. We're living like Jesus hasn't been resurrected and isn't coming back and that we really have very little to do day in and day out. Is that how you live? It it shouldn't be. Well, let's look at these four individually. First, we see that we are to think rightly in order to pray in verse 7. It says, the end of all things is at hand. Therefore, or for that reason, be self-controlled and sober-minded. Peter had called us to be sober-minded back in First 1 Peter 1.13. Now, being self-controlled and sober-minded, these t- two things are, are virtually the same thing. See, some believers saw that, that they were at the, the end of all things and they were perhaps losing their head. They were acting irrationally. And Peter's saying, don't do that. Be self-controlled. Be sober-minded. Proverbs 25, 28 compares a man without self-control to a city with broken down walls. Kind of useless against attack, right? I mean, how can you be good to, to, to yourself or to God or to anyone else if you don't have any self-control? Now, being sober-minded is similar, as I said, but it suggests that you're not intoxicated by something that is going to impair your judgment. This stands in contrast to the unbelievers that we see back in verse 3 in chapter 4 earlier who live in sensuality and in passions and in drunkenness, etc. But not you, Christian. You are not to do that. You are no longer living for human passions but for the will of God. Now, why does he tell them to be self-controlled? Why does he call them to be sober-minded? It tells us. It says, for the sake of your prayers. Be sensitive. Be alert. Use your clear thinking in order to pray. Don't simply babble out prayer, but inform yourself by being sane and being sober of what is going going on around you in order to pray effectively. Ask God to act and to move in the time that remains. Ask that you would join him in the work by arming yourself to suffer, as 1 Peter 4.1 says. By always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you, 1 Peter 3.15. You see how this is all connecting? Peter is writing a whole letter here and it's just building and building and building. But not only think rightly in order to pray, but also love we see is Verse 8 continues and we see that this love covers sin it says above all in other words there's there's nothing higher there's nothing better that you could be doing above all keep loving one another earnestly seems kind of self-explanatory right Jesus had said in John 13 35 by this all people will know that you are my disciples if you have what if you have love for one another. But Peter adds the word earnestly here. In other words, love with intentionality. Be intentional. Do specific loving things. Don't just have a mushy-gushy feeling about someone, but love them sincerely and fervently, intensely and wholeheartedly. And this we see is the apex of what he's telling you to do. It's the height. He says above all. 1 Corinthians 13, 13 says, Now these three remain, faith, hope, and love. But the greatest of these is what? It's love. Love will remain in eternity even when your faith and your hope have been realized. Even when your your faith and your hope have been fulfilled, when you see Christ standing there in heaven, still there will be love. Peter calls you above all to, to love one another earnestly. But then notice that Peter grounds Christ's call to love in the Old Testament. He refers them back to Proverbs 10, 12. Peter says, above all, keep loving one another earnestly, and this is why. Since love covers a multitude of sins. Proverbs 10, 12 says, hatred stirs up strife, but love covers all offenses. And this love here that that covers, it's not talking about hiding sin. No, it's not what he's talking about. He, he, it's, it's, it's talking about a refusal to be petty. It's overlooking the fact that, that I have weaknesses or that person or that person or that person has idiosyncrasies that just kind of drive you nuts. You see, nitpickiness destroys churches. Nitpickiness destroys families. Nitpickiness destroys relationships. And I need to hear that just about as much as you do. I get nitpicky. Our guiding principle, though, should be love. Jesus said in Luke 7, 47, he he who is forgiven little loves little. And if you're a Christian, you and I have been forgiven so much. And so therefore we have so much love to show. Now there is a time when sin can be so gross and we need to confront it. And we see in Matthew 18 how we're to do that. Christ gives us steps to take in which we discipline those in the church. But day in, day out, most of what we see, most of the sins, most of the problems that we have with one another, they can be overlooked. Dr. R.C. Sproul says covering love is how families survive. We all have our failings. We all have our our weaknesses. This is not to make light of sin, but it is to emphasize the fact and how we are to deal with it. It it should be done in love. But a lot of the the stuff that we deal with, it could just be overlooked. We need to realize, and I want you to hear me when I say this, we need to realize that another sin, someone else's sin, is primarily an offense against God and not you. Did you get that? It's primarily an offense against God, not you. If you're captivated by God's glory and making much of him, a lot of the grievances that you and I might have with one another, they'll just simply melt away. If we're God's spiritual house, as we're told in chapter two, verse five, then love is the cement that that will bind us. If you you and I are bricks in God's building, then love will keep us together. It covers a multitude of sins, it says. But how are we to display this kind of love in practical ways? Well, we see that in verses 9 through 11 as it continues. We see in verse 9 that we are to show hospitality. It says, show hospitality to one another without grumbling. Now, when you think of the word hospitality, what what comes to mind for you? Do you think of uh, fine china and tablecloths and kind of a cozy atmosphere and everybody's having a great time, well-dressed and nice hats and, and uh, what is that, the seersucker shirts, thing? Is that what you think of when you think of hospitality? What does he mean here, show hospitality? What is it? Well, I can assure you what it isn't. It isn't any of those things. It's not a show. It's not to be confused with entertaining. It's not about impressing people with with delectable foods and wonderful atmospheres. Primarily, hospitality is not about you, it's about the other people. Peter, we see, grounds hospitality here in love. It's a practical way to show love for one another. And oh, by the way, we see that it's a command, meaning it's not optional. So so if you get anything out of what I've said so far, I hope you see that we as Christians are to be in a relationship with others, loving others in many practical ways. And hospitality is one of them. Now, I would agree with others' assessments when they say that hospitality is one of the most neglected commands in Scripture. We, We just simply don't do it. How many people in this church have you had to your home? How many people in this church are regularly involved in your life? How many of your neighbors have you reached out to? And I'm not simply talking about giving them a tract or a Bible verse, but maybe sharing a meal or an experience, showing them love. Show hospitality. It's a command. And you may be thinking, well, I don't really want to do that. It requires more of me than maybe I'm perhaps willing or even able to give at this point. Maybe that's why Peter made it a command and then, and then adds here to show it without grumbling. It says, it says that. Now, if you're inclined to overlook hospitality, thinking perhaps maybe it's not all that important, then I would refer you to some other scriptures. And I'm just gonna kind of fire these out to you rapid fire, so if you wanna write them down, you can do that or you can get with me afterwards. Romans 12, 13. 3 John, verses five through 11. Matthew ten forty. And Hebrews 13, too. In fact, Hebrews tells us, let brotherly love continue. And this is how you do it. Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels unawares. So when you're showing and you're sharing the love of Christ, you might be doing it to angels. Now, if these references still don't convince you of your need to show hospitality, then I would point you to Jesus himself. I mean, he epitomized hospitality. In fact, there are three ways that the Bible completes this sentence. The sentence is, the Son of Man came. This is what Jesus says about himself. This is what he came for. Number one, the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many, Matthew 10.45. Number two, the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost, Luke 19.10. And number three, the Son of Man has come. Eating and drinking, Luke 7, 34. Now, you and I can't do the first two. Not, not really, anyway, right? Not ultimately. We're not God. But we need to eat regularly, and we could be sharing that time with others. Jesus did, and they called him a glutton and a friend of sinners. Are you? Not not are you a glutton, but are, are you a friend of sinners? Do you see eating and drinking and sharing life with people as a practical means of witness. Jesus did show hospitality to one another without grumbling. Then we see in verses 10 through the first part of verse 11 that we are to serve one another with the gifts that God has given you. It says, as each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. So each one of us has received a gift, and he's talking about a spiritual gift here. He's not talking about, like, presents you get on Christmas. Spiritual gifts. Now, Peter uses the same word for gift here that Paul does in 1 Corinthians 12. And Paul makes the point that each of us has something that we could be doing to build one another up. All of us need to be ministered to as well as to minister to others. And whether you know it or not, you you minister to me in many practical ways. Got to spend some time with Matt yesterday just eating and drinking and sharing life together, and that was beautiful. Use the gifts that God has given you to minister. Be a good steward of the, God, of the gifts that God has given you. He says, be good stewards of God's varied grace. Now, now by varied grace... He means that the grace of God that is given to you manifests itself in a different way in you, perhaps, than it does in me. It's it's varied. Maybe we we have the same grace, we have the same salvation, we have the same Lord, but you and I were given different gifts, different expressions of what God has done. You have something to offer members of the body of Christ and your neighbors and those around you that maybe I don't have. And then he'll give us two ways that we can serve one another here. It says, whoever speaks as one who speaks oracles of God, whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies. So, so Peter does not give us a long list, different ways we can provide for one another, but he, he puts them into two major categories. Now, now Paul gives us, kind of a similar list in in Romans 12, 6-8, but he kind of breaks them all out for us. He gives us seven things in in Romans 12. Prophecy, teaching, exhortation, leading, service, contributing to the needs of others, and acts of mercy. But all of those fall into these two categories. You see, Peter's probably writing to people like you and I, we probably need the simplified version. We need the, the two things instead of the seven. And, what, and when Peter says speaking here, don't think that he only means preaching and teaching. That's included, but that's not all he's talking about. You don't have to have a pulpit or you don't have to have a class in order to have a word from the Lord. You might be called to encourage someone. You might be called to, to, to witness to someone. You might be called to sing to someone or correct someone. Speak That's the point. Share with your mouth the oracles of God. In other words, you you speak God's word in service to others. The grace of God in your life has been given a mouth to use for his service. But but not only a mouth, but we also see that, that we're given hands. For you see that you've also been called to serve. In other words, you meet the needs of others. And you might be saying, well, I don't have a lot of money. I, I, don't really, I can't really help people out financially. Well, then you, you can give them of your time. You maybe can do some physical act of expressing your love for someone. Or maybe you're saying, well, I'm, I'm older. don't really have the ability to do physical acts of kindness. Well, then you can give of your money. Or if you don't have those, you can use the gifts that God has given you in order to speak truth to someone else. You can, you can encourage, you can pray, you can be a witness. Anyone can do that that is, anyone who has the Holy Spirit. Everyone has a gift. There is no excuse that we can make that that would justify total inaction on our part. Maybe you can't do what you used to do, but there's always something that you can do. Everyone can pray. Everyone can encourage. Everyone can be a witness. Peter's point is, faith has an outlet your mouth, your hands. Share the love that you've been shown by God by being a good steward of the gifts that God has given you. Love one another earnestly, covering a multitude of sins. Do so practically by showing hospitality and serving one another in your giftedness. I want to share with you three times in my life where my life was totally changed when someone demonstrated love in their actions. Number one, in finding a wife, Adina. I don't know why I had to add your name there as if I had another. <laughs> uh, in finding a wife. In spiritu- number two, in spiritually growing in the church. And three, in finding a church to pastor. Number one, in finding a wife. Did you, you know what, what happened? Do you know how Dinah won my heart? She cooked me a meal. She, she just did something practical that I needed that expressed love to me. Showed me that she cared. Number two, when I, when I started to grow spiritually in the church, you know how that happened? Someone came up to me after church on the first week we were there visiting, and they invited Adina and I out to, uh, to dinner with them. There was a visible demonstration of believers putting their money where their mouth was. That set me on the road to, to growth. Well, you might be saying, well, those are both about Food. I'm not really as fixated on food as you are. And you're probably right. But but the principle remains the same. Love must be demonstrated somehow. We see that with Christ, don't we? Well, what better way than than for you to, to demonstrate this love in the practical everyday facets of life? Thirdly, when I found a church to pastor, did you want to know what it was that convinced me that I felt called to the church that I'm at? It was their love and their hospitality, their faith in practice. One of, the, one of the most loving things that they'd done for me and my family is just simply to share their life with me. Picnics, meals, just spending time together. I really wonder if God would have called me there had I not seen their warmth and generosity. Their faith was demonstrated in both their speaking but also in their service. That is the Christian life. And you need to be doing this for everyone in this congregation and all those that are around you, not just your pastors, but for all those whom God has placed around you as a means of showing love, creating moments for discipleship and evangelism. If you want to see this church busting at the seams and seeing many come to Christ Then love people by showing hospitality, using your gifts to serve and speak the truth of God. It's so easy, yet we just don't do it. That must be a part of your life. This is the Christian's instruction in verses 7 to 11. You show me a church where, where this behavior is not exhibited, and I will show you a dead church, a lifeless, demon faith that cannot be expressed Practically. Then we see finally in verse 11, the Christian's intention in living in light of the end. It says, in order that in everything, God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. This is your purpose. This is why you do what you do. Your intention in all things should be the glory of God through Christ, not for yourself, but for God. First question we ask our kids in the catechism we use is this, what is the chief end of man? And they say to glorify God and to enjoy him forever in order that in everything God may be glorified through Christ. Now Paul says in 1 Corinthians ten thirty one: so whether you eat or whether you drink or whatever you do, you do all to the glory of God. And that's what Peter's saying right here too. And then he gives us a doxology here, a closing song of praise to Jesus. It says to him belong glory and dominion forever and ever, amen. Now, the word dominion here is just another word for power. All power belongs to Jesus. Do you realize that all praise and all power belong to God in Christ? And if you do, do you live like you know it? Peter's telling believers who are suffering to glorify God through Christ because everything belongs to him. All the opposition they're facing, all the opposition that you should be facing is under the control of God. To him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Every other, any other power in this world cannot lay claim to eternity. Babylon fell, Persia fell, Greece fell, Rome fell, and on and on and America will fall if Christ should tarry. Only Christ will continue. Only his power is forever and ever. Amen. Hallelujah. What a comfort to know that only the righteous, only Christ will continue to be in control. It's his. It belongs to him. Now, the church where I pastor is in a small town about three hours from where I grew up in Pittsburgh. and Occasionally, we like to get down there and we visit my parents or my brother and his family. And on one of the trips, we were on our way down there and the kids were sitting in the back talking and we were on our way to visit some of the cousins. And uh, Micah started asking if he could bring in his little box full of toys into the cousin's house to play with, all of his superheroes and his action figures and all that stuff. And I looked at Adina and I said, uh oh, no, let's not do that. It wasn't really so much a commanding tone as it was more of like a, a plea. Please, let's not do that. I said, if we bring those toys in, he's just gonna lose them. Or, 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 or we'll have to just deal with the, his, his, you know, losing his mind when he can't find them. I don't think he quite loses his mind, but, you know, that's just me uh, embellishing there. But Adonis said, well, if he brings them in, then at least he'll have some toys that belong to him. And maybe there won't be then any fighting over the toys. Well, in all honesty, I can't even remember whether we brought them in or not. But Adina had a point. Kids can, as well as adults, they can be possessive. It's their toy. It belongs to them. But this shouldn't be a problem for you and I when it comes to God. And what is due him? What is due him? Glory, power. It says these things belong to God. Yet so often, this is our very problem. We want glory. We want power. We want things that are rightfully his, and therein is the rub. That's where the problem is. That is why there is sin. And what a mercy that God doesn't just simply wipe us out. He allows humanity the illusion of control and delusions of grandeur. Job 12.23 says, he, that is God, makes nations great, and he destroys them him belong glory and dominion forever and ever it's not that he's going to have those someday he's got them now glory is his dominion is his and so you have an incentive here the end of all things is at hand how are you going to live in light of the end well verses 7 through 11 tells you it gives you your instructions number one think rightly in order to pray number two love it covers sin Number three, show hospitality. It's a command. It's not an option. Number four, serve one another with the gifts that God has given you. And your intention in all of that is that God may be glorified. This is how you're to live in light of the end. It's not about skipping work this week and going off and fulfilling some kind of hedonistic, pleasure-laden craving. You live in light of the fact that you are an exile here in this world who will soon be home with your Lord if you're a Christian. Now, if you're not a Christian, then you, you might think that you've got all the time in the world. But the end, it says, is at hand. How then should you live? You can't rightly think. You can't rightly love. You can't rightly show hospitality. You can't rightly serve outside of Christ if you've not repented of your sins, if you've not trusted Christ as your Savior and your Lord, then you are powerless to live in light of the end. You can only be this way if you have Christ. And do you know why? Because everything belongs to him. You must be in him in order to experience a life that gives him glory and power that is due him. Christ died on the cross to to pay the penalty for sins so that you wouldn't have to. But you must be willing to give those sins to him to repent, to turn, to have your life hidden with Christ in God. And once you do, he gives you the power to live this way. We're going to pray together. And if you've not trusted Christ as your Savior and your Lord, then I invite you to seek him right now. If you need need help with that or you want to talk to someone, there's going to be men in the back. There will be pastors down here. I'd like to speak to you as well. The end of all things is at hand. Don't wait. Let's pray. Father, we all need to hear this word. Very, I would imagine that that none of us are barely scratching the surface on what you have called us to in living in light of the fact that you are coming again. Lord, we love you. You know we love you. Lord, help us to to do things that demonstrate that. Let us feed sheep. Let us reach out to those by fulfilling the great commission, by going out into a dark world, Lord, and being a light. Lord, you give us so many practical ways we can do that here. Being sober-minded in order to pray rightly. Loving others, covering sin. Showing hospitality. Serving one another with the gifts that you've given us. Lord, thank you for that. Lord, we love you, we praise you, we give you all praise, honor, and glory. It's in your name we pray, amen.